is an Odyssey original. This is KDX in Depth. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. A major warning from the CDC regarding artificial tears. It's asking people to stop using Esri Care artificial tears because it could be responsible for dozens of infections all across the country. Even one death will look into a potential danger there. And by the way, this brand of tears, it's made in India, which is a major hub for generic drug manufacturing. So we'll go in depth into why the United States is so reliant on India for our medications. And Russia is increasing its attacks in Ukraine, which raises the question of whether it is preparing for a major offensive. The U.S. is working with the Philippines to boost the military presence there. We'll go in depth into how this move is a direct action meant for China. There's an idea out there getting some attention in the media that solving the debt ceiling crisis is an easy one, and it's just minting one coin. It might not seem as easy as it sounds, though. I have one coin. It's about all, but I have one coin. So we'll see how that one works out. We start, though, with the CDC warning about potential danger by using Esricare artificial tears. With us is Dr. Benjamin Burt, an ophthalmologist at Memorial Care Orange Coast Medical Center in Fountain Valley. Doctor, thanks for being with us. Thank you very much for having me on. So uh, one would think that going to a pharmacy, buying an over-the-counter box of uh, artificial tears, and provided that the expiration date is into the future, one would think that that would be a pretty safe thing to do. But apparently, in this case, not so safe. Correct. And, you know, most of the time we expect the artificial tears and other eye drops that we're purchasing to be completely sterile products. I mean, that's one of the requirements for eye drops that we use in the eyes. And artificial tears is one of the most common eye drops that is used uh, around the world. And so certainly it would come as a surprise that they could cause this severe of a type of infection. And in this uh, case, are we talking about uh, this uh, this brand of eye drops made in India? And if that's the case, how does one tell when you're buying your artificial tears or any eye product that it that it's made in India, not the U.S.? Yeah, and it's very very difficult to ascertain sometimes the country of origin for the the medications themselves. This is a generic version of the artificial tears, and the packaging compares it to the eye drop called Refresh Plus. And so Refresh Plus would be the brand name, which is made by another company. And so generics, as you mentioned in the introduction, a lot of them are coming from India, not just over-the-counter eye drops, but also some of the prescription eye drops. And we have found efficacies different between the drops that are manufactured in the U.S. and other countries compared to the eye drops that are manufactured in India. So it is something that people are aware of. We thought it was more an efficacy. There wasn't really necessarily the concern about safety until this came to the surface. And to be very clear, uh, because you mentioned refresh and a lot of people use those drops, I know that is different, even though the other one, the Esri one is a generic version. They're made by separate companies. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. So they are manufactured differently. The active ingredient is similar. So here's my question. Why does the bacterial infection caused by these particular drops, why is it apparently so difficult to treat? And how does somebody die from an eye drop? Right. So 
that is definitely the most extreme situation that can happen. Now, the bacteria that they have found is one called Pseudomonas aeruginosa, which is usually a bacteria that lives in soil and in some water. It is a very pathogenic uh, bacteria. So it's one of the most common infections that also happens for contact lens wearers. And so in this case, having this very aggressive bacteria present in the suspected contaminated artificial tears, you're basically inoculating yourself with this dangerous bacteria. Usually the uh, um, symptoms that you would expect to have would start with redness, pain, decreased vision, light sensitivity, things that would make you kind of think that something was wrong. The aggressiveness of this bacteria, though, can spread into all the different tissues of the eye. And the suspected mechanism for actually contributing to a death would be that it would have to spread through the sclera, the white part of the eye, extend down the optic nerve, which is essentially the cable that takes the image from the eye back to the brain and use that as a pathway to get into the brain, into the skull, and actually wreak enough havoc to, to cause a mortality. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Benjamin Burt, ophthalmologist at Memorial Care Orange Coast Medical Center in Fountain Valley. We were talking in our last segment about Ezra Care artificial tears and the issues that uh, it has with some contamination. It's causing some problems for people all across the U.S. And as we also pointed out, they are made, those tiered, uh, artificial tears in India. And it's not the only medication people in the U.S. get from India. In fact, the U.S. pharmacopoeia finds that um, India accounts for a large part of the world's active ingredient production for generic drugs. Stephen Schandelmeyer is a professor of pharmaceutical economics in the College of Pharmacy at the University of Minnesota. Stephen, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Glad to be with you. So uh, I remember reading an article not that long ago, maybe about a month or so ago, actually, about not only are so many of our drugs, generic ones in particular, manufactured in India, but that the FDA, which is responsible for making sure that those labs in India are up to our standards, perhaps the FDA doesn't do such a great job. Well, I think FDA does the best they can with the resources Congress has given them, but but they aren't able to inspect each and every plant where drugs are made. Uh, different than, for example, in the food industry, they have an FDA inspector in most food production plants. But with respect to pharmaceuticals, uh, they set out guidelines and principles of good manufacturing for uh, companies to follow, but FDA only expects plants uh, at best once every two years. And during COVID, they kind of got behind with that because of travel restrictions and other things. Is this a problem of uh, laziness on the part of the FDA or is it a problem of they don't have enough funding, they don't have enough personnel? I think more the latter two, both funding and personnel. FDA would like to inspect more, but they don't have the resources to. Uh, But also they don't routinely inspect even factories in the U.S. that make pharmaceuticals. And I think as you started this story, what a lot of people don't realize is uh, if we look at all of the doses of drugs that people take in the U.S. every day, uh, probably 75 to 80 percent of those are made outside of the U.S. And the vast majority, probably 45 to as much as 70 percent of our doses are made in either India or China, where they have a fairly poor record of 
uh, factory inspection and quality control. Well, that's a problem, isn't it? Because, uh, you know, depending on one's age and, and physical health, uh, many Americans are taking lots of medications, topical, uh, internal. How concerned should we be that so much of what we take, presuming, you know, our doctor writes the prescription, we pick it up at our neighborhood pharmacy, and we think that we're getting good quality and safe meds, uh, how concerned should we be that perhaps we are not? Well, I, I do think we should be concerned and, and, and take some caution. But let me say that the vast majority of drugs are safe and effective and appropriate to use. Uh, but we can't be sure that all drugs we would get in the U.S. healthcare system would necessarily be uh, safe and effective. So we should be concerned about the country of origin. Where was this product made? And we should ask our physician and pharmacist and other health providers to check on and let us know what the country of origin is. And particularly on OTC products and prescription products on the label, it usually tells the country where a product came from. But sometimes it doesn't. And so that leads to the other issue. Where does one go to find this information if it's not on the label? Well, that's a a big issue. I've been working for a number of years trying to increase the transparency about where products are made. And there are um, a number of folks in the pharmaceutical industry working to increase this. Uh, There is a site called Daily Med that's maintained by the National Library of Medicine and FDA, where you can look up virtually any drug by its NDC code, and it usually will tell you what the country of origin for that drug is. So a person can usually find it, not always, but usually find it. And briefly, did we end up in a situation where India supplies so much of the drugs that we take because it's just cheaper to make it there? Is that it? That's a lot of it. It's cheaper to make it. You remember a time when a lot of manufacturing in all industries was going overseas and drugs were along with the rest of them going overseas. And what's happened is the companies that sell drugs in the U.S. have figured out they can make it a lot cheaper in China or India, and also um, they maintain minimal inventory levels so that they don't have a lot of money sitting around in inventory on the shelves. Uh, And what we found out during COVID, there are issues of uh, shipping uh, of drugs. Like You remember when the ship got stuck in the Suez Canal, and that led to uh, some drugs being in short supply, but also there were factories closed because of COVID and production. And We've had a lot of drug shortages. You you might have noticed ibuprofen, amoxicillin that people have had trouble getting uh, for their children's uh, respiratory infections. Those are shortages uh, due to product being in India and not being Uh, able to get out and get to the U.S. We're going to have to leave it there, I'm afraid, only because of time. But but thank you so much for, for being with us. And I'm sure we'll check back with you in the future because I think that this is a story that's going to go on for quite some time. Thank you very much. Coming up, the U.S. looks to show off its military might to try to deter China. And some people in the money world say one coin. Mm. Yeah, you heard me right. One coin might be the answer to our entire debt ceiling situation. I don't believe that. Mm. I don't. I I said it. I know I said it. I don't believe it. And we've heard this idea before. Yes. And I must confess that my eyes rolled in my head so hard I had ocular damage. Don't use those artificial tears no, that we talked about earlier. Now i got to watch out for that, too. Yes. 
Right now, though, Ukrainian officials say Russian missiles have hit residential areas in an eastern city. For the second time in 24 hours, rescues have been searching the rubble of an apartment building where at least three people were killed yesterday. This comes nearly a year into the world uh, war. Uh, journalist Phil Edner is back with us. He is in Kiev. Thank you so much for taking the time in uh, dangerous situations to uh, talk with us today. So the concern that we're hearing is that Ukraine is saying this might be the beginning or the signaling of another major Russian offensive. Is that what you were hearing? Yeah, that's the concern here in Ukraine. Um, they they know that there are hundreds of thousands of conscripted soldiers uh, that are staging on the Russian side of the lines, preparing for a major Russian offensive. And um, they've been preparing for that for quite some time, putting in defensive measures and uh, fallback lines and all sorts of things. But a massive onslaught like that, uh, I mean, will the Ukrainian uh, better trained, uh, better supplied forces be able to resist you know, hundreds of thousands of Russians uh, coming at them, even if they've only just had maybe a few weeks of training on an AK-47? Now, is this missile attack, uh, or these missile attacks plural, uh, the signaling at the start of that? Well, Krematorsk, where I was actually about two weeks ago, is around the front front area uh, of the of the fighting. Uh, it, it is a linchpin strategic area, um, so it it could be, but it's really too early to say. And uh, as you know, Phil, there's been so much uh, newsprint uh, spilt on the fact that the U.S. is acquiesced to giving Ukraine uh, advanced tanks, and Germany is. Uh, but yet, the tanks that we're going to give, they're probably, what, a year away. Uh, President Biden just uh, a few days ago nixed the idea of sending uh, advanced fighter jets, and so did Germany uh, nixed that idea to Ukraine. Are they going to Ukraine have the weapons that they really need to combat what might be the coming of a fairly extensive Russian offensive? Well, I don't have a crystal ball, but I can do the math. And, um, you know, there, there's significant numbers of, um, of, you know, really sophisticated, very powerful NATO top-of-the-line uh, weaponry that's coming here. I, I, we, I just actually uh, just today had independent confirmation that the Bradley fighting vehicles are in Poland. And um, those are those are you know amazing vehicles. I owe my life to one of them when I was inside, embedded with uh, the U.S. Army in Baghdad. Um, I know how those how good those machines are. But the Leopards and the um, other you know NATO main battle tanks, they'll be on the front maybe at the end of March, maybe at the beginning of April. Uh, the Abrams, as you mentioned, which is a very different piece of kit altogether. It's a, basically a jet engine around a, a tank, um, you know, a tank surrounding a jet engine. Uh, yeah, that won't be here for, yeah, as you say, maybe a year. Will it be enough? They're very good pieces of equipment. If the Ukrainians can transition from their old Soviet style of fighting to a NATO-based doctrine, using these uh, pieces of kit, they will be able to really hold the line. Now, in addition to that, um, many of the cities throughout Ukraine are now 
veritable fortresses. So they're going to get bogged down, the Russians are, as they kind of move westerly towards the capital, which ultimately would be the prize. Now, presumably they could make a sweep down through to Belarus, but nevertheless, they've had a year, the Ukrainians, to dig in, you know, provide themselves with defensive lines. And now with these new fighting vehicles, if they can get here in time, the Bradley will be here very soon. The other things, as I say, later um, towards the spring, I think they have a good chance, uh, a very good chance of fighting off what are basically just a mob of soldiers who have just been ripped out of uh, Russian cities, put in uniform and mm-hmm. given, you know, an AK. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, we will keep uh, an eye on this situation. And uh, journalist Phil Lindner there, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today from Kiev. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. The U.S. is boosting its military in the Asia-Pacific region. It's going to expand military presence in the Philippines. American forces will be given access to four more military camps. Now, the goal here is to deter China in the region, but is it going to work? Mark Kennedy is director of the Wilson Center's Waba Institute for Strategic Competition. He just wrote an article, in fact, in Wilson Quarterly about how the U.S. needs to change its strategies in dealing with China and other countries. Mark, thanks for being with us. It's great to be with you. So explain briefly why we have this not sudden interest, because the Philippines has, has long been an ally, of course, in that region for the U.S., but why this sort of stepped up presence. And I understand we're going to be shelling out something like 80 plus million dollars to do some renovations in, in infrastructure on the basis there as well. Well, our allies are clearly concerned about having a region that is based on the rule of law, not coercion. And if you see Philippines, it's right up against two hot points. Taiwan, where they have islands that reach out and come very close to Taiwan on the south side, just as Japan has islands that reach down and come close to Taiwan on the north side. A couple of the bases will be at the northern island of Busan, which is right near that Taiwan uh, hotspot, but also the South China Sea, where where China has claimed a huge swath of the sea that is resource rich and where a lot of commerce travels. Uh, So some of the bases, or one of the bases will be out at Palawan province, right up near the South China Sea, that is in conflict with Philippines, Vietnam, and other nations claim the same water that China is claiming. Now, this comes on the heels of an Air Force general uh, recently predicted war with China by 2025 and was telling officers in a memo to uh, get ready to uh, fight China by then. General Mike Menahan, I think, he sent a memo out to some officers. Is there something moving behind the scenes that this might be indicative of and we are beginning to move chess pieces into place? Well, uh, we I don't think it's really uh, something that we haven't made public. I Minahan mean, has been uh, perhaps more vocal in terms of his prediction, but it, it, we were facing a possible uh, assault on Taiwan that we don't know if and when it will happen, but we have the tyranny of distance. And so part of what having bases in the Philippines allows is having prepositioned supplies, having uh, bases where you can go and refuel and build facilities, because if China decided to do something in Taiwan, and if we decided to move to their defense, if all of our resources were back in America, General Minahan is in charge of mobility. So he's got the task of bringing our forces in America on on site in in the Taiwan. 
So he would clearly be advocating for having stronger preposition opportunities, which this new agreement with Philippines offers. Okay, so the U.S. beefs up its military presence in the Philippines. What does China do to match that? Well, China's been having an anti-axis aerial denial strategy where they have uh, far more medium-range missiles than we have, all pointed at our bases. We've had very strong bases throughout Japan uh, that that, uh, we've had our forces concentrated in. Part of why this Philippines effort is so important is because of their missiles pointing at us, we're looking to disperse our forces. The Air Force is trying to do that through agile combat employment, what they call ACE. The Marines are trying to do that between expeditionary advanced base operations. In both cases, they want in the Air Force multiple airstrips, even if they're just small, you know, dirt airstrips, uh, to be able to disperse their planes, give uh, China more places to shoot at. And the Marines want to be on multiple islands to control the sea with small groups of, of Marines. So the multiple islands that are not just on the bases that are part of this agreement, but even smaller ones around them are core to the strategy of dispersing our forces so that China's main strategy of having this assault of missiles is diffused. Uh, You know, one of the I I think the part of the reticence on the part of the U.S. to not send too much to Ukraine, even though we want to, is because we don't want to spark a direct confrontation between world major powers, something we haven't seen uh, for quite a few decades. And so the concern here is we are preparing ourselves. We don't want one, but we're preparing ourselves for a direct military confrontation with China. What are the possibilities that if we do have a direct military confrontation with China, that things won't go nuclear? Well, that's always a concern. And as you know, China is working aggressively to build up its own nuclear force. I would just say, as it relates to whatever cost here, the deterrence, which is this is part of an effort to deter, whatever you spend on deterring is less expensive than any other outcome. Whether you win or lose a conflict, uh, it's going to be much more costly than try to deter it. But I think that is going to become an increasing uh, concern because. we not only have the issue of China building its own nuclear forces, but we've, we've been safe uh, with uh, mutually assured destruction with two parties, us and Russia. But now that you're gonna have three major uh, nuclear powers, it becomes much more complex. So trying to keep uh, safety and peace in this period of multiple nuclear powers has got to be priority and clearly has got to be factored into strategic decisions. All right. But being strong is hopefully going to help us deter. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, Mark Kennedy, director of the Wilson Center's Waba Institute for Strategic Competition. Republicans in the House and President Biden are in a standoff, among other things, over increasing the debt ceiling. The country has already reached its borrowing limit, but creative accounting is preventing a default. However, That can only last for so long. Now, there is an idea being floated around about minting a $1 trillion platinum coin. One coin worth $1 trillion. But but here's the thing, though, Rob. Can you imagine how badly you would feel if you're the guy (laughs) who's given that coin and you drop it and lose it? It goes down the storm drain. Oh, my God. What do I do? I have I've destroyed the country. 
Uh, that's an idea being given to the Federal Reserve with us to explain if this would work or not work or would work or is crazy is uh, Ron Ansana, senior analyst and commentator on CNBC and host of the Market Scorecard Report, and Nathan Tankus, research director for the Modern Money Network. I'm going to start with you, Ron. Uh, is this a good idea, $1 trillion coin, and would it work? Uh, I, I don't think it would work. And, 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 you know, Jay Powell, the chairman of the Fed yesterday, made it pretty clear that there's one solution to the raise it to this debt ceiling impasse, which is to just raise the debt ceiling, as was done three times during the Trump administration, even as uh, in that four year period, we added seven trillion dollars to the national debt. I, I happen to think that minting a coin is an artifice. It's a trick. And we've heard that from others. Uh, Janet Yellen, the Treasury secretary, doesn't want to play around with that idea. I mean, we may as well just instruct the mint to print $1 trillion bills and turn them over to the Fed. There's also a real question as to whether or not the Fed would accept a platinum coin uh, to then act as the Treasury's fiscal agent and, and pay bills with it. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think it's, it's something the Federal Reserve will do. I don't think the Treasury is currently considering it. And, and I think it's kind of a bit of trickery that would uh, not go over well with financial markets. Uh, Nathan, uh, you know, we were trying to figure out which one of you would go first, and we flipped a coin, of course. <laughs> it was a trillion-dollar <laughs> coin. Yes, and, yeah. <laughs> so do you think that – so we heard Ron. Ron thinks that it's, it's basically uh, bogus. But is there any uh, credibility to this idea? Is it something that, in your view, could actually work? I think it would definitely work. Um, as I've been writing in the last uh, two weeks in the Financial Times Alpha Pill blog, uh, the Federal Reserve has, I mean, first, let's start from the very basic thing. There's a statute, there, there's a, a provision of law, uh, U.S. Code, Section 31, 5112K. It's very clear, the plain meaning uh, the Treasury Secretary can direct the mint to mint a coin of a platinum coin. It has to specifically be a platinum proof coin. Uh, proof just basically means that the coin is very shiny. It's a high production grade um, of any denomination um, for the needs as needed by the United States. And that this coin is legal tender. I mean, it, it, it is it is monies and it, it, it is legal tender. Now, of course, the obvious question is, well, you mint a trillion dollar coin. What are you going to do with it? You can't just, you know, divide it into a thousand pieces and hand it to all our creditors. So that's where the Federal Reserve comes in. And as I've been writing, the Federal Reserve is a fiscal agent to the Treasury. Um, and it's longstanding, widely acknowledged that the Federal Reserve as a fiscal agent in uh, conducting its responsibilities to the United States is not fully independent. There's multiple quotes from Greenspan talking about how in the fiscal agent relationship, um, the Federal Reserve is not independent. And I'm sure that they would be very uncomfortable with a trillion dollar coin being minted, but they have no legal basis for um, refusing a deposit oh, of okay. legal tender. Ron, Ron, do you want to respond to that? Yeah, I, it just it's it sounds like a fairy tale to me. I understand that the law exists. I understand that the Treasury has the statutory um, ability to do this. It just from from a practical perspective, uh, financial markets, I think, would see this uh, as mere trickery. Um, and and it, look, it, it could also be potentially inflationary. It could devalue the, the dollar. It could cause a spike in interest rates because, quite frankly, the debt limit itself 
is is not something that needs to be raised in order for us to spend future dollars. It's to pay existing obligations of the U.S. government. And the budget process going forward about spending more money or not spending more money is something to be decided between the Congress and, and, and the White House. I just I just find this as a, a, to be an artifice. I, I, I know the statutory um, capability is there. It, to me, it just sounds like modern monetary trickery that doesn't really deal with the question at hand, which is one, paying our obligations, and two, uh, developing safe and sound budget processes going forward. Briefly, Nathan, have we ever done this before in any way, shape, or form? Um, well, we've done similar uh, kinds of things, just not with a platinum coin. We've done them with gold certificates, where the Treasury prints up a bunch of gold certificates and says, oh, we have a bunch of gold, we're going to sell them to the Federal Reserve. Um, they've done it with foreign currency. Oh, we're holding this foreign currency, but we're up on the debt ceiling. Let's sell it to the Fed and we'll move uh close to the debt ceiling there's these imf things called sdrs which they've sold certificates of all sorts of gimmicks that are of a smaller amount but still into the billions and billions of dollars don't actually change anything about the federal government they just happen to increase the balance in the treasury's checking account and that's all this would be about it doesn't authorize uh the the, the federal government to spend any more money than Congress has already authorized. We're not talking about spending trillions more dollars. Um, we're simply talking about the federal, the federal government paying the bills that it has. And it's by this artifice of this debt ceiling, there's a, a divergence between the authorized borrowing and our obligations. And yeah, it's an accounting gimmick. So what? It's an accounting gimmick that will make sure that the United States does not default and cause an existential crisis from the safest assets in the world suddenly having this risk attached to it. All right. Uh, thank you so much, guys. Uh, that's uh, Nathan Tankas uh, speaking, the research director for the Modern Money Network. And Ron Ansana on the other side, uh, senior analyst and commentator on CNBC. And, you know, my idea yeah. is why don't we put a call out to aliens and ask them, please come uh, yeah. to see us and buy our planet for a trillion dollars and we'll deposit that with the Federal Reserve. Well, I've got another idea just for myself. Uh, I owe a few thousand to a credit card company. I'm just going to <laughs> mail them a single coin and say... This takes uh, no, care of it. It's got to be a shiny platinum coin. I will spit shine it. <laughs> okay. Real, that's it. real spit. That's it for today. <laughs> and I guess only yours would do. Only mine would do. Uh, this has been Kate Action. You Definitely. can spit on it. <laughs> if you want. Everybody spit on it. <laughs>